But this morning we want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to continue from where we left off last week. Um, and we're going to be focusing in on 9, verses 9 through 11. And uh, entitled this morning's sermon, Forget Not From Whence You've Come. <laughs> I don't know if that's proper English, but it sounded good to me. So, uh, As we read this passage, verses 9 through 11, um, then we'll just do a quick review of where we were last week. Verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteousness will not, unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. As we read that passage, you kind of trying to figure out how does this connect with lawsuits and what they were talking about last week. Remember what we, we spoke on uh, last week, the wrong way to right wrongs. <laughs> and what was happening, just so you remember, in the, in, the Corinthians, in the Corinthian church was the church itself began to break down. They had a lot of issues. And some of these issues were sexual in nature. Some of them were relationship-oriented. Some of them were um, uh, bringing their pagan background into the church once again. And so that's why Paul wrote this letter. In the beginning of chapter 6, last week, we looked at three reasons why Christians should settle their disputes before believers and not secular courts. And that's what Paul was pointing out to them. Uh, That's why he's so... Um, surprised that they would do such a thing that they would bring a lawsuit against one another. He's totally taken back by that because they're the body of Christ and the body of Christ should not settle their differences in a court of law. That's a very biblical, basic principle. And yet that's exactly what they were doing. They were suing each other and they were taking each other to court Not even because one was right and one was wrong. Like I said last week, these are not grave issues. They were more opinion-based issues. But they thought, well, if we can get them in court, maybe the judge would give us a favor and, and we'll get some money out of it. So they were greedy in their attempt to swindle and to extort money from other brothers and sisters in Christ. And so last week we looked at the reasons why believers are more competent to settle disputes be, between believers. In other words, the Bible clearly tells us that we should settle these things amongst ourselves. In the first three verses there, it says, when one of you has a grievance against another, how dare you go to the law court before the unrighteous instead of the saints? In other words, You need to come to your brothers and sisters in Christ. You need to go to the church. That's how the church is set up. We need to care for one another. And then he gives reasons. He says the saints are the ones who are going to judge the world ultimately. We looked at that. And not only that, but they're even going to judge angels. And ultimately we'll be co-reigning with Christ. So don't think that the church isn't capable. Your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ is not capable to do that. And that was the second point that not only are they competent, but they're capable to make decisions because they have God's wisdom. They have the Spirit of God living within them. They have access to the Word of God that they completely understand and comprehend and because of the Spirit's work in their life. And so it's very important that we understand that you know, when you go before a secular court to settle an issue, or for that matter, a secular counselor, you're asking for problems. They're not going to be on the same page. They're still in darkness. They don't have access to the, the understanding of the word of God. Yeah, they may have some worldly wisdom they can share with you, but whose wisdom would you rather have as a believer? Would you rather have worldly wisdom? 
or would you rather have God's wisdom that proves itself true every time? And then we also said that believers are not only competent and capable, but they're constrained to apply God's love and forgiveness. That's what we're called to do. When someone wrongs us within the body of Christ, we're not called to have a grudge. We're not called to, yeah, we'll get you. Have that kind of an attitude. That's not, should be far from the heart of a believer. We are constrained to apply God's love and also God's forgiveness. And that's kind of what we're looking at today. Um, Some people say, well, what's the tie-in here all of a sudden with verse 9? I mean, he ends in verse 8, but you yourselves wrong and defraud. He's speaking to the church. Even your own brothers. In other words, you're doing this maliciously with ill intent. For ill-gotten gain, you, you want to take their money from them. He says, why would you go to unrighteous people to try to settle a dispute between two believers? And some commentators say, well, it's because they were doing wrong, and now he's pointing out all the other things that are done wrong in verses 9 to 11. I don't, I don't think that's the connection there, personally. I really feel the connection more so is, look, you shouldn't be taking these people to court. They're your brothers and sisters in Christ. What are we called to do before our brothers and sisters in Christ and to our brothers and sisters in Christ? We're called to not take them to court, but we're called to what? Forgive them. They may have done something wrong against you. They may have taken advantage of you. They may have spoken ill about you. What are we called to do? We're called to forgive them. We're not called to hold a grudge. We're not called to march down to the courthouse and say, I'm going to sue you for defiling my character or whatever. You don't do that, especially before unrighteous judges. You're called as a church to work these issues out. Now, I know that gets a little ugly and it gets a little uncomfortable at times because nobody likes to confront. But I would take confrontation on a personal level any day because it's biblical. That's what the Bible tells us to do. If you have an issue with somebody, you need to go talk to that person and try to reconcile, try to restore that relationship. Now, granted, some people... You're barking up the wrong tree. They don't want reconciliation. They're vindictive people. Well, you let them go their way. But don't allow their actions to be a weight around your neck for the rest of your life. I can't believe they said that. Why? They're accountable to God. If you're not holding a grudge in your own heart against them, you move on with your life. And you pray for that person. And that's really what ties these verses together, I believe. Verses 1 through 8 and 9 through 11 is the principle, the very biblical principle of forgiveness. We're given it, it's given to us in the New Testament over and over and over again, the biblical principle of forgiveness. We're called to forgive one another. I think probably one of the, the best places, if you turn over with me, and we'll come back to 1 Corinthians, but uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, and I just want to look at two verses here because it clearly points out this principle. And we'll look at some others too, but I think here it's clearer than anyone else. Look at verse 31. Four thirty-one. He says, let, Paul says, let all bitterness, let all wrath, all anger and clamor and slander Be put away from you, along with all malice. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander. What's that? That's that's talking about someone negatively behind their back. Now, there are times when we have to share information with each other, and it's negative information. He's not talking about that. It's talking about somebody within the church that makes it a point to go around and whisper in people's ears negative things about everybody else for the purpose of causing division. He says, let these be put away from you along with all malice. Kakia in the Greek, it means general evil. (laughs) All evil, let it be put away from you as the body of Christ. Verse 32, 
What's he say? He says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Look, there it is, forgiving one another. Not suing one another in a court of law, forgiving one another. Now, that's a very clear statement. That's, Paul doesn't stutter here. He doesn't leave a door open. Well, what if they do this? doesn't matter. It says, kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Well, what's the standard, Paul? He gives it to us right there. As God in Christ, or because of what Christ did for us, because he forgave us, we should be willing to apply this principle to others. Now, I know it's not easy. We all have feelings. We all have things like that going on. And, but this is the principle that we should follow when it comes as far as the church goes. And this is called the statement on the principle of forgiveness. We are to forgive one another. Whatever they do. In the same way that God, because of Jesus Christ, has forgiven us. That's the standard. I mean, can you imagine if Christ said, well, you know, I'm going to forgive you, but you no, know, nah, I'm sorry, I can't do it. That's not how he does it. The breadth and the depth and the height of God's forgiveness and this forgiveness can only be understood by how much God has forgiven us. When you stop and you think how much God has forgiven you for what you have done to cause dishonor to his name. And yet he has freely forgiven you in Christ. This is something the Corinthians clearly did not understand. It's a standard by which we forgive one another. In one sentence, 432, Paul summarizes the law of personal relationships. We've all heard of the golden rule, right? Teach our kids that. Do unto others as you would like them to do unto you. I mean, that's the golden rule. And that's nice, and we like to apply that. But the biblical standard says this, do unto others as Christ has done unto you. That's what the biblical standard is. Because, frankly, sometimes our emotions get so out of whack, we don't care what others... Sometimes we even want others to do ill to us so we can have an issue with them. You know, it's just the fallen nature in us. Do unto others as Christ has done unto you. That's the biblical standard of forgiveness. We forgive others in the same way and in the same measure with total forgiveness that Christ exercised forgiveness on our behalf. I mean, that's an incredible truth. If we could just grasp that and understand it. Matter of fact, in, in John 13, 13, Jesus wanted his disciples to understand that he was kind of the standard for their living, for their behavior. And you remember that, that context there, John 13, 13, he's, he's dealing with the disciples and he's trying to lay down a pattern and a model for their behavior. And he said in verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am so. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash, wash one another's feet. Now, he's not giving a mandate here for foot washing. That's not in the context here. That's not even what he's talking about. He's using it as an example. I mean, we don't wash people's feet today because today we, we don't wear so much sandals. We wear shoes and socks. We don't walk on dusty streets anymore. So washing people's feet was very much a, something that needed to be done when someone entered your house because their feet would be horrendously dirty. And so he was using that example. He wasn't saying, oh, Christians ought to wash everybody else's feet. No, that's not the point. He's giving them an example, a model of his servanthood. And that's what he says in verse 15. He doesn't say go wash everybody's feet. He says, for I have given you an example 
that you also should do just as I have done to you. What's he talking about? Washing feet or serving? I think he's talking about serving because he puts the emphasis on serving in other places. I've not come to be served, but I've come to what? Serve. Now, that's a spiritual principle that you want to get a hold of. So the question is, what kind of behavior does a Christian have toward another Christian? That's really what we're dealing with. It's very practical. And the answer is simply this. You treat that other Christian as Christ treats you. That's what we're called to. We're to treat each other the way Christ has treated us. Or even over in in Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. Verse 12, Paul writes it this way. Now here he's telling the Christians, he's saying, hey, in verse 12, verse, chapter 3, verse 12, Colossians, he says, put on then, and he reminds them, you're the chosen ones of God, you're saints, you're saved, you're righteous ones, holy and beloved. He says, put on then compassionate hearts. It doesn't need a definition, it just means a heart of compassion. <laughs> Kindness. Humility, look at meekness, patience. And then what does he say? Bearing with one another. Oh, okay, what's that? that? That basically means being patient with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, sometimes that's hard, isn't it? I mean, it's hard. You know, as long as I've been in ministry, I mean, there are some people, they wear out my patience like that. They just do. And i got to pray really hard that I'll respond in the right way when, you know, they're chipping at your ear or doing whatever. Because you've been there, done that a million times. And they're still standing there telling you like it was the first time when it's the 50th time. And they refuse to listen to any counsel. They refuse to do what the Bible tells them to do. But they're right back there in your ear the next week railing on something. Life's too short in my mind, for people like that. So I try to be courteous, I try to be kind, and I try to be patient. That's what bearing with one another is. And then he says this, if one has a complaint against one another, that's what was happening in Corinthians, right? In the church of Corinth. If you have a complaint against each other, what's the biblical standard? That you forgive each other. That's what he says. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also Look at what it says, must forgive. It's not even an option. I mean, this is unlimited total forgiveness. That's the kind of forgiveness that Christ exercised toward us. That God exercised toward us in Christ when he died on that cross, when he paid for our sins. He didn't forgive part of our sin. He didn't forgive some of our sin. He forgave all of our sin. What a glorious truth that is. The Christian is to put on new clothes, new virtues, you might say. And one of those virtues is the virtue of forgiveness. We're to forgive in the same measure, in the same quality of forgiveness even. In the same sense that Christ forgave us. And you know what people ask when you tell them that, right? Because I ask the same question. Well, okay, Lord, I, I'll, I'll forgive them, but how much do I have to forgive them? <laughs> how many times do I have to forgive them? What if their behavior doesn't change? What if they don't repent? Am I still called to forgive them? Remember what Jesus said to Peter. Peter said, Lord, if my brother sins against me, how many times should I forgive him? And he's being a big man. He's being, you know, Mr. Spiritual. So, Lord, I, I, should I forgive him seven times? <laughs> Thinking that I'd get a star next to my name. And Jesus' response is not seven times, but what? Seventy times seven. He's not giving us a numeric value. It's not you reach that total and it's like, okay, now I don't have to forgive anymore. (laughs) No. It's infinite. That's the idea. 
The attitude of the Christian toward another Christian is to be one of forgiveness. I mean, it doesn't matter what they did. It doesn't. It has no bearing on it. It doesn't matter how much they hurt you. It doesn't matter what they did, what it was. We're called to forgive. That is the obligation. That is the command. Now, you can live in disobedience and not forgive and carry a chip on your shoulder the rest of your life and have that thing bug you and keep you awake at night and everything else when the other person is not even thinking about it. What a waste of energy and time that is. Or if you look at Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus addresses this again in Luke 17. Luke chapter 17. Look at verse 3. He says in verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. Some translations, take heed to yourselves. He says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he, rep- <clears throat> if he repents, forgive him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must, what? Forgive him. It says, take heed to yourselves. In other words, you better watch yourself. Be careful. Because a brother or sister will sin against you. That's just part of the Christian life. And if it happens, when it happens, what's our response to be? I mean, people offend us, people trespass against us all the time. If you've been a Christian for a day, you know that is true. What do you do when that happens? Rebuke him. If he repents, do what? Forgive him. doesn't matter if it happens over and over and over and over again. Because that's what people say. I mean, that's what I say. God, forgive that guy. Just keep on doing the same thing over and over again. Really, Lord? Do I keep on forgiving and forgiving? That's what his statement is there. Yeah, yeah, even if he does it seven times in one day. Remember, Peter was saying, seven times, Lord? He says, in one day, this person does this to you. See, the principle is very simple. It's the obligation to forgive, to move on. I mean, and it's important to think of it this way. There's nothing, there's nothing that anybody has ever done to you in any situation that is unforgivable. I mean, we say it is, but it's not. There's absolutely nothing that falls into the category that's beyond our forgiveness. It doesn't matter what they've done, how much they've offended you, how much they've wounded you, maybe they've grieved you, maybe they've physically injured you. I mean, nothing falls outside the context of this scripture. The reason I say that is because what falls out of the context of God's forgiveness in your life? Is there something that you've done that God is not capable of forgiving you for? You're to forgive one another even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. That's the principle. And when you come to Christ and you believe and you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior... Is there any sin that is beyond the point of forgive, forgiveness? No. The Bible says that he cleanses us. He washes us from all of our sins. doesn't matter, matter what it was. It could have been a moral issue. 
I mean, it, you, you could have been the, the vilest, rottenest, lowest reprobate on earth. I remember reading about a, the, the lady who, uh, in the Roe versus Wade, the Roe versus Wade uh, court case that basically did the whole, brought the whole abortion thing to light. And when you, when you stop and you think her name was Norma McCorvey, she was the Jane Roe of the Supreme Court, Roe versus Wade, in 1973. And that that court case legalized the killing of unborn babies, legalized abortion. And the story goes that she was working in a woman's health clinic in Dallas, and the headquarters of, you remember, the the group Operation Rescue, they moved in right next door to this women's clinic where she worked. And the head of the pro-life organization was Philip Benham. And it was there that Philip first encountered Norma McCorvey. Now, these people were on polar opposites of this issue. Uh, She had a lot of hostility in her her own life. It's reported that one time this lady said in front of reporters, they, she was asked a question about somebody who was criticizing her um, work as an abortionist. And they were accusing her of, of killing all these babies. And her response was, well, you know what, you can bring your, your own over here and we'll do that to them too. That's how hard-hearted this lady was. We'll kill your babies too, just bring them down. Not a problem. So this relationship between this Operation Rescue leader, Philip, and Norma was very tense. But the story says that he took an interest in her, he listened to her, he showed her love, he showed her compassion, and over a period of time the two became friends, unlikely friends. And Norma McCorvey slowly began to reveal the secret doubts that plagued her heart. And she said one day she was sitting at a red light and she looked over at a playground and all the swings were empty. And she later told ABC News, the swings were swinging back and forth, but they were all empty. And I just totally lost it. And I thought, oh my God, the playgrounds are empty because there's no children, because they've all been aborted. Within a few weeks, Norma began visiting the offices of Operation Rescue. She began to volunteer and do certain odd jobs. And she said that the, the people there, even though she was a very staunch abortionist heading up that whole thing, they showed her courtesy, they showed her warmth, they showed her friendship. And then it took a seven-year-old by the name of Emily, who was the daughter of the office manager who invited Norma to church. (laughs) To a little seven-year-old. And Norma accepted, and that very night, she came to Christ. She acknowledged him as her Lord and Savior. Now she is, obviously, she was after that point pro-life all the way around. Well, what can change someone like that? What can make a change so drastic? Because there's nothing that she has done that is beyond God's forgiveness. And you know, it's, it's important that when we forgive one another, that it's true forgiveness. I mean, if you're going home still hankering over that thing, it's not, you're not forgiving that person. Because Jesus himself says, yeah, your sins are forgiven. They're buried in the depths of the sea. They're forgotten. 
I mean, wrap your head around that. God forgot our sins, <laughs> sees them no more. The God who knows everything. So we have to be open about this and confess, really, that a lot of us don't practice this principle of forgiveness to this degree. We are disobedient in this area. And it's, it's hard. I'm not saying it's easy. It's not something that you can do on your own. It's something that the Spirit of God can do through you. But see, that's really what he's pointing out to the Corinthians. Turn back to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. That's really what he wants them to understand. That, you know, it's not about a list of things that you shouldn't be doing. He's not even really, you know, some people make this a, a big diatribe on you know, all these different sins. Well, they're listed there, and pretty much we understand what each one of them is. But I think the connection between these verses and the previous set of eight verses is that subject of forgiveness. Paul is pointing out to the Corinthians, look, you're going to leave the body of Christ, and you're going to go to someone who has not been forgiven, is unrighteous, doesn't have the Spirit of God, doesn't understand the wisdom or the counsel of God, and you're going to take your brother or sister there and sue them in a court of law? What have they done that's so wrong? And so that's why he says in verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? What he's saying is you're acting in an unrighteous way. Even though God has declared you righteous, you're acting in an unrighteous way. You're, you're acting in a way that's unbecoming to Christ. And so he says, you know what, lest you forget who the unrighteous are, and that's where we see this corruption of sinners exposed in verses 9 and 10. You see this lost condition, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, who are the unrighteous? There's only one answer to that question. It's those who are outside of Christ. Those who have not been declared righteous by God himself because of their expression of faith in the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, these people who are unrighteous They're not going to be with you in all eternity, and yet you're going to go to them and take a brother or sister to Christ before them and and allow this unrighteous person to make a judgment when you should be judging this issue by yourselves in the church. You should not be dragging each other into court. I mean, I think we forget how lost we are, or we were, if we're saved. We forget that. And that's what Ephesians points out to us, Ephesians chapter 2. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in, once you, in which you once walked. You were dead spiritually. That means there was no life there. There was no understanding, there was no spirit, there was nothing. You were dead. You couldn't do anything. A dead person cannot do anything. They're dead. You're dead in your trespasses and sins, Paul writes in verse 1 there of chapter 2 of Ephesians, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. Paul includes himself. In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and we're by nature, look at this, children of wrath. Whose wrath? God's wrath. Like the rest of mankind. 
That's how unrighteous we were. And I love verse 4, but God. (laughs) But God, being rich in mercy. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, has this on his gravestone. It says, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. I mean, what changes people to this degree? Whether it's Norma, whether it's John Newton, whether it's the Apostle Paul, Newton on another occasion said, I am not all that I should be or all that I want to be. But thank God, thank God I'm not what I used to be. See, we have to have a thanksgiving in our heart for the cross, for Calvary, where our sins were paid for. Because of that, we're not who we used to be. D.L. Moody, after he got saved, said this, I went outdoors and fell in love with everything. I never loved the bright sun shining as much as I did that day. When I heard the birds sing, I fell in love with the birds. Everything was different. See, that's true transformation. That's, That's something that saves us radically from this lost condition of unrighteousness. And it can only happen through God's power. So that's the the condition of the lost. But we also see a lured or a deceived condition. He says in verse 9 there, he says, do not be deceived. I wonder why he says that. Why is he telling the Corinthians, don't be deceived? Because I think many of them probably were deceived. What that means in the original language is stop it. Stop being deceived. Stop stop listening to the nonsense. I mean, the enemy is constantly out there chatting in our ear. Trying to deceive us on every occasion. There's a lot of different causes for deception or delusion. You have Satan, you have the false prophet, false messiahs. False prophets, plural, evil men, those who cause division, sin, even ourselves can cause deception in our own heart. I mean, deception is something that we need to be clued into. There was a lot of people who were sitting in the Corinthian church week after week who were deceived. And Paul says, stop it. Don't you understand? Your, your, your behavior is not lining up with your practice. Your practice is not lining up with your profession. Yeah, you come to church. But have you been saved? Coming to church doesn't save you. Getting baptized doesn't save you. Saying prayer before your meal doesn't save you. Giving to the church Money or goods doesn't save you. The only thing that will save you is when you come to terms with your lost condition, you realize there's no other way to be saved and that you need to be saved. And he lists off a list here. He says, look, don't you understand? You know, who these people are, these unrighteous people, these dis- don't be deceived about them. Why would you go to them for counsel? Why do you, would you go to them and take a brother or sister in Christ there and expect them to make a judgment against you? On the back of your outline there, you see a lot of circumstances that lead to deception. You can read that on your own. But you have to be careful. Take heed to yourself. And you see the condition, this low condition that our society has sunk to. 
even back in this time, this was not alarming. This was, people lived this way. Neither the sexual, immoral, he says, these are practices, and the emphasis is practices. These are people who do this as a way of life. Somebody once asked me, would you think a homosexual could be saved? Well, sure they could. Anybody could be saved. They just have to stop. They come to Christ. They, they ask for forgiveness. They repent of their sin. Just like somebody who's an adulterer would repent of their sin. Or somebody who's stealing things or being greedy or being a drunkard or a reviler or a swindler. Swindler. They're all, they're all sin. See, in our mind, we categorize them. Well, you know, at least I'm not a homosexual, but God doesn't look at it that way, folks. Remember what Jesus told the Pharisees and his, the crowd there that he was talking to? They said, well, how good do you have to be? He said, well, basically, here's the standard. You've got to be perfect. Remember he said that? Is my Father in heaven is perfect. Wait a minute. You have to be perfect? 100%? 100% of the time, yep. Who's going to be saved? How can you be saved? That's the whole point. It's not up to you. It's God that does the saving. We just acknowledge that we need to be saved. It's like somebody drowning in a pool. And you got the little lifeguard ring there, and you say, you want me to throw? No, no, I'm good, I'm good. And they're going under, and they come back up. No, I don't need your help. I don't need your help. That's what happens to people spiritually. They're sinking spiritually. They may have it together in this life, but they're forgetting that there's a life hereafter, all eternity. And it makes this, this life seem like a drop in the bucket. It's a vapor. It's gone. So he lists these practices That if this is your way of life, these are people who are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. These are nouns. They're not verbs. You may look through this list and say, well, good thing they didn't mention mine. (laughs) Well, no, that's not his point. Sexually immoral, those who live in a sexual relationship before they're either saved or married. Idolaters, those who worship and bow down to false gods, false religious system, that was there in Corinth, clearly. Adulterers, those who are unfaithful to their marriage partner. Homosexuality, those who practice that and other gender perversions. You have thieves, those who steal, greedy, those who covet. Those who are bound by alcohol, strong drink, drunkards, revilers, meaning those who destroy with their tongues. Swindlers, those who steal indirectly, it's... It's not they're going to come up and steal your wallet, but they're going to have you sign a paper and swindle you out of something, take unfair advantage of others. That's what they were doing in Corinth. And Paul said, you know, this is not what righteousness represents. This is not the kind of people that you should go to for counsel. (laughs) Because... They're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. They're not going to be with you there in eternity. What are you thinking? And then you see the change in the saints in verse 11. You see what happens. He says, and such were some of you. See, lest their heads get too big and look at that list and go, well, we're not doing that, Paul. That's not his point. Once again, his point is, is that how could you go to people who are unrighteous that are dealing in this manner in their regular life for any kind of counsel or judgment or anything. 
But don't think that gives you a big head, Corinthians, because such were some of you. Such were some of you. He doesn't say all. That's why I said there was probably some unbelievers in the church of Corinth who were disguising themselves as Christians but living in a totally pagan way. We know there was. Such were some of you. See, there's a positional change that happens when you come to Christ, when you're declared a saint. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look down at verse 20. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ... God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And then down um, in verse 21, for our sake he made, him, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, look at this, we might become the what? What's it say? Righteousness of God. Why did we have to become the righteousness of God? Because we had no righteousness. The Bible clearly says that. There's none righteous. No, not one. I mean, you may be a little more righteous than your next door neighbor or the guy on the street. But before God, you're not righteous. You don't even, you can't even hold a candle. No way. See, that's a positional change that happens. You have unrighteous people in this world and you have righteous people. It's not hard. It's not a, you know, 3D chess match or something. It's pretty simple. Those who are not righteous, those who are unrighteous, are those who have not been declared righteous by God. And why have they not been declared righteous by God? Because they haven't gone to God in repentance and say, hey, I need some forgiveness over here. (laughs) They haven't humbled themselves before God. And said, yeah, from what I'm understanding... Your son went to the cross for my sins. I know I got some sins. I just need to come and ask forgiveness. Some people don't. (laughs) They won't. Or in Romans. Romans chapter 8. Look at verse 16. Romans 8. 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We're no longer, what's the other one? Children of wrath. That's everybody who's not a child of God is a child of wrath. We're children of God. Verse 17, and if children, since we're children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That's part of his plan for us. You know, the Christian life is not meant to be a walk in the park, smelling the roses, declaring your wallet full. That's that's not the Christian life. That's a lie. Jesus says, you want to live the Christian life? You want to follow me? Then roll up your sleeves and get ready to suffer because that's exactly what you're going to do. And it's not something that we should even have to endure. We should should wrap our arms around suffering for Christ with everything we have out of gratefulness for what he's done for us. Gotta suffer a couple years here on earth, and yet you gain all eternity with God in heaven, your sins forgiven. Even here on earth, you're made a new person, you're given the Holy Spirit, you're given the Word of God, you're given the church to help you walk this life that He's called us to. That's the positional change unrighteousness to righteousness. And that happens when God saves you, when you have been declared. Righteous, But you also see here there's a personal change because he says such were some of you. <laughs> Emphasis. 
Such were some of you. He wants them to be clear that you know what? No Jesus, no change, no change, no Jesus. That's what he wants us to understand. This can't happen on your own. It's not something that you can work on. It's something you need to go before God and ask Him to do in your life for you. So there's a personal change. You see it in the life of Paul. You see it in Norma's life. You see it in other people's lives. Wow, they're just different. Yeah, because they've been saved. God has saved them. He's made them different. And then you look at the condition of the saints in verse 11. Also tells us how this kind of all fleshes out this aspect of salvation. He says, such were some of you, but, just like the other verse, right? But God, well here he says, but, what does he say? You were washed. Or in Pennsylvania we say washed. But I'll say washed because I'm out here on the West Coast. You were washed. What does that mean? You were purified. I read one commentary of this. And the guy had a great outline and everything. I was reading that. I thought, well, this is good. You know, I'll take these notes and I'll utilize these. And then came to this part. And he said, yeah, this, this, this has to do with once you're baptized, your sins are washed away and you're saved. I'm like, oh, no, no. And he was talking about water baptism, not spiritual baptism. I thought, how can you get everything else so right and then you mess up in this one area? See, baptism doesn't save you. He's not talking about water here. He's talking about being washed, being purified, as only God can wash us. It really indicates the extent of the changes which have taken place. You know, it's, it feels good to be washed, doesn't it? Have you ever been gone for a prolonged period of time? Maybe you're in the hospital or whatever and do the sponge bath thing. I've never been in the hospital. Thank, praise the Lord. I'd, I think I'd lose it. But, um, you know, I always feel bad because, you know, you can't just get up and go take a bath or a shower when you're, had something done or you're in surgery or whatever, you got to wait, you know, wait for, I don't care if the doctor said, you know what? <laughs> uh, you know, we, you can't take a, a shower for a couple days. And so, um, you know, just, you can't get it wet. You if I went home, I'm taking a shower. I don't care what the doctor says. I mean, I'd use everything. I'd get that tape on TV. They sell, you know, the seal and stuff and seal myself up. I'd be in the water. I'd have to take a bath. That's just, it feels so good. To get refreshed. Get all the stuff washed off you from the day. And... Well, think about it spiritually. But you were washed. You were made clean. You were purified by the blood of Christ. Because you put your faith and trust in something greater than you. I mean, you can scrub Till Christ comes back. And you're not going to be as clean as when God cleans you. When God washes you, he will wash you completely pure. White as snow. If you've ever seen fresh fallen snow on the ground. Now it doesn't stay clean. <laughs> but when it's fresh fallen snow. Wow, it's just beautiful. You see, it's just pure. Matter of fact, everything that was ugly is covered up by that snow. And then it melts and you're like, oh yeah, <laughs> back to reality, right? That's how God cleansed us. He washed us. And then it says that he claims us through sanctification. Some of you were washed. You were, what's he say, sanctified. Notice these are all past tense. These are things that are done. These are not things that we continue to work on. These are something that, in God's mind, are completed. So he says, he put you aside. That's what that word sanctified means. It means set apart for God. 
And when God sets something apart, trust me, it's set apart. Now, practically, every day we're being sanctified, right? Because sanctification also means we're being made more into the image of Christ. So every day when we get up and and we start the day, God is working on us. He's conforming us to the image of his Son. That's the sanctification process. But here he's talking about, in the mind of God, I chose you before the foundation of the earth. Therefore, you are set aside. You are mine. And he even tells Jesus, not one will be lost who I set my love upon. So he claims us to be his own. He sets us apart. And then lastly here, he says, you were justified. Well, what's justified? Justified is God declaring you righteous. He's looking at you, someone who's not righteous, because the Bible said there's none righteous, no, not one, but I'm going to declare you righteous. I'm going to put my stamp of approval upon you as a righteous child of God. And that's why we're in this process of sanctification. We're being made more and more and more righteous each and every day. That's practical sanctification. Here he's talking about positional sanctification. And that's what this justification is. He declares us righteous. Doesn't mean we always act righteous. Don't get that in your mind. But we are justified. It speaks of our standing before God. How God looks at us when he sees us. See, he no longer considers us that list. What? Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, abusers, thieves, covets, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. What does he declare us? He declares us righteous in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, this is a problem, I think, amongst a lot of believers because they fail to understand how God sees them as his children. God God no longer looks at us at what we used to be when we were sinners. Can't see it. But he sees us who we are in Christ because in Christ we've been declared righteous. See, salvation provides everything you need to be complete in Christ. There's nothing you can add to this. And because I'm washed, because I'm purified, I can face my guilt. Because I'm sanctified, I can be what I should be and trust to live a godly life each day. And because I'm justified, I don't have to worry about what I am or, or who I am or what I was. Because God doesn't see me that way. I mean, that's a blessed truth. And it all is because of Christ's work on Calvary. That's what he wants the Corinthian church to understand. That's why he's saying, look, stop quibbling amongst yourselves. You need to deal with each other with a spirit of forgiveness. Not lawsuits. There's a song called Thanks to Calvary. I was listening to the Gaithers the other night, and one of the guys sang it, so I wrote down the lyrics. The chorus says, Thanks to Calvary, I am not the man that I used to be. Thanks to Calvary, things are different than before. While the tears ran down my face, I tried to tell them all, Thanks to Calvary, I don't come here anymore. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy in our lives. I want to ask this morning, has the Lord Jesus Christ ever changed your life? I want to ask you, is there light where there used to be darkness? Is there hope where there used to be defeat? Is there life where there used to be death? There is if you've been changed. If you can praise his name today, knowing 
that your life is hidden in Christ. Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians really in a way to say that you should be ashamed of yourselves, calling yourselves Christians and living this way, suing each other in court. You're acting like unrighteous individuals. They needed to repent. They needed to change their mind about their behavior and come afresh to the Lord. We're not saved because of all those things that are in that list. We're saved from them. If you've never been changed, I pray that you would understand you need to be saved. You need to come to Christ. You need to confess your sin. Acknowledge your sinfulness before a holy God and cry out to the Lord, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from this weight of sin. Change me. Make me a new person in Christ. That's a prayer that God will answer when you pray it from a sincere heart. He will change you. He'll make you new. And help us as believers as we leave here today to remember that there's many people in our lives that are deceived. They don't know you, even though they may say they know you. Lord, help us to be bold enough to not only pray for them, but to be willing to confront them on their lives, on their behavior. To really test their Christian faith. Lord, I pray you'd give us wisdom in all these things. We ask your blessing in Jesus' precious name. Amen.